Hey everyone, welcome to Nerdin' About. I'm Space Michael, and with me as always is my co-host who last episode indulged me by going into the Star Wars universe for, you know, maybe the first time uh, that she's ever been able to do that. But Kaylee, how are you doing? Oh, hey now. I've seen one or two of the Star Wars. But we, we, took a, we took a deeper dive than you've ever done before, though. Oh, than I've ever done or ever wanted to do. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, I'm doing pretty good, actually. How are you doing over there? Yeah, no, uh, all of our programs at the Space Center are now in my kitchen, which I'm now recording this from my kitchen. You know, it's like it's like Wayne's World over here. You know, we're, we're like a, a community TV station. I love it. Uh, today, we're joined by esteemed pigeon wrangler, Elizabeth Carlin. Elizabeth is a PhD candidate at Fordham University in New York, where she uses genetics to study pigeon ecology and evolution. Oh, hey, Elizabeth, how are you doing? Hello, it's good to see you. It's good to see you too. So today we're going to talk a little bit about your work. We're going to talk about pigeons. We're going to talk about how you study them. But maybe, first of all, tell us how you got interested in studying pigeons in the first place. I kind of ended up on pigeons because I want to say that like all the good animals were taken. <laughs> I knew I wanted to study urban evolution and urban ecology and when I got to my lab, my lab mates were working on mice and rats and coyotes and salamanders. And I kind of looked around and was like, well, they have all the good animals. Um, we should probably add a bird model if we really want to figure out what's going on with urbanization and how it influences all these different types of organisms. And pigeons kind of seemed like the easiest bird to catch, the, the city bird that was kind of everywhere. It was just a random kind of, everybody got the good animals. I came in late and was stuck with pigeons. Well, you know, everybody got the good animals. And like, I don't disagree. Rats are among the best of the animals. But do coyotes and rats end up on Saturday Night Live like your recent study did? Uh, maybe sometimes. But yeah, that was one of the craziest things to uh to wake up to, I was actually asleep when when I got the text message from my undergrad, Gabby, telling me that they had just talked about my research on SNL. Maybe tell us a little bit about that research. What is it that you were working on that they featured it on Saturday Night Live? So I've been looking at pigeon population genetics in the Northeast, really kind of trying to figure out how pigeons are related to each other. I kind of call it like a big 23andMe for pigeons. So I've been catching pigeons from Boston all the way down to Washington, D.C., and then taking a little bit of blood that I then bring back to the lab to analyze to see how these individuals are related to each other. So you sample these pigeons from all over. You look at those genetics. And what do you find? I found, surprisingly, so my hypothesis going in was that pigeons aren't going to move very far. They have plenty of food and plenty of mates within the city. And so why should they leave? But what I actually found was that from kind of Southern Connecticut and New York all the way down to Washington, D.C. is one population of pigeons. And from Boston and Providence and kind of Northern Connecticut, that's a, a different population of pigeons. And this kind of surprised me. And I started to look at some landscape features about why this might be. And there's this weird suburbanization break. So from New York down to Washington, D.C., it's heavily urbanized. And then there's a weird suburban break in Connecticut. And then again, Boston and Rhode Island are pretty urbanized. And so I'm thinking that maybe pigeons don't like the suburbs. Maybe they are true city dwellers to be in these more heavily 
urbanized areas. So when you say pigeons don't move that far, how far do they move? They can move very, very far. They can move uh, hundreds of kilometers. But on average, they're moving about half a kilometer a day. We know this from backpack studies where pigeons got little GPS backpacks put on them and flew around all day. And then researchers came and looked at where they went. And on average, they're moving about half a kilometer. So those pigeons in your neighborhood really are your neighbors. They That is where they live. And you probably see the same pigeons day after day after day. Now, pigeons, as you talk about, are very urban creatures. But of course, they couldn't have started out that way. So where did they come from in the first place? Pigeons are native to North Africa, the Mideast, and Southern Europe along the Mediterranean. And they were domesticated around five to 10,000 years ago, originally as a food source. But as other poultry became more popular, there's a lot more meat on a chicken or on a duck. People started breeding pigeons for their fancy traits and their racing abilities. So there's now pigeons that race really quickly, that fly very quickly. They also have fancy traits such as feathered feet or big head crests or behavioral traits such as tumbling and rolling when they're, when they're flying in the air. So people have been really breeding them for, for a long time to get kind of these uh, unique traits. So we brought the pigeons here. We brought the pigeons <laughs> to North America. Yeah. Uh, a couple hundred years ago, as Europeans colonized North America, they brought pigeons with them, again, likely as a food source. And then they were either intentionally released or escaped. And that's what formed some of these first feral pigeon populations in the Northeast. So you're talking about some of these fancy traits, but have you seen any of these fancy traits in any of the birds that you're catching in the city? I definitely see fancy traits in my pigeons or the pigeons that I'm catching in the city. Uh, I see things like a, a pink eye which is one of the fancy traits that's bred in. I see feathered feet quite often. The degree of feathering is really different. Sometimes they'll be completely covered in feathers and other times they'll just have kind of like feathery legs, kind of like if you hadn't shaved your legs in a while, there's these little splotches everywhere. And occasionally I'll get a head crest in there. I've gotten birds that have, have an all black eye. And then, of course, the many different colors. So we kind of think of pigeons as typically that gray with the two bars on the wing. And that's known as a blue bar. But you also see pigeons that are white, that are all black, that have checkered patterns on them, that are brown or red. And so there's lots of these different colors that have been introduced into this this feral population, likely from those fancy breeders. Do you see any variation in the genetics that aligns with those traits? Or is that anything that you're looking at? I'm going to be looking at that next. So that is the next big goal for my dissertation and my research is to figure out how much these different fancy breeds are really contributing to the feral pigeon population. And do you think that they're just, they're getting in just because people are breeding them nearby and they happen to get out when they go for a fly and find a fellow feathered friend for a while? Like, is that how you think it's happening? I think they might be in intentionally released or unintentionally released. So I think, yeah, sometimes pigeons get out, they escape, and it's very likely that those end up in the feral population. Racing pigeons, people are actually part of racing pigeon competitions. And so if those don't make it all the way home, 
they can end up in the feral population. And it could also be that people can no longer care for pigeons that they've, they've kept as pets for a long time. And so they open up their pigeon coops and let the pigeons go free. We see this a lot with other pets that people have, such as turtles. We see in a lot of public spaces here in New York City and Central Park, the ponds are filled with red-eared sliders that were pet turtles that people then released back into the ecosystem, which is not really a great thing to be doing. And certainly not flushing the turtles down into the sewer where they will soon learn the skills of martial arts. Right, right, which would be great. I'm not recommending that people flush their turtles down the toilet, though having Ninja Turtles would be pretty amazing. We already have them. I know it to be true in my heart. (laughs) So I guess this brings up a really sort of like big question uh, surrounding pigeons. It's even a little bit surprising to me to hear that, you know, people that breed them because most people that I know really don't like pigeons. So really when it comes down to it, when it comes to the health of these birds and maybe even the health of our cities, are pigeons good for cities or bad? I think that's a complex question. I think that a lot of people might not like pigeons flying at their face, which I completely understand. At the same time, I think if we lost pigeons from our cities, we would be sad. I can't really imagine New York City without pigeons. And for a lot of people that are living in cities, this is one of the only wildlife interactions that they have on a daily basis. It's some of the only wild animals that we ever get to see. And so I understand that desire that to connect with nature, that want to connect to nature, that need. And I think we end up with these complex relationships because of that, where people feel the desire to feed these wild animals, kind of forgetting that they are wild animals and that they can feed on their own, that They don't need humans to be dumping out bags of food for them because they're actually pretty good at foraging on their own and they can go find that food. Given that people sort of fall into this like range of like loving pigeons to the disliking pigeons, you do a lot of outreach in the places where you're trapping. What kind of engagement do you get from people? Do they have lots of questions? Are they really interested in taking part? What's that like? As you might expect, New Yorkers are very good at minding their own business. But if I can catch their eye and invite them over, I always try to do that because I am a guest in whatever community I'm in. So even if I'm in a different neighborhood in New York than where I live, or if I'm in one of these cities like Boston or Philadelphia or Washington, D.C., it's really important that I invite the community to come and see and watch what I'm doing and participate. Most of them have never seen a scientist doing work in any form. And I think they're always kind of surprised to hear that we don't have some of these basic questions about pigeons answered. And so it starts this really fun dialogue among these people that weren't expecting to talk about science or get a science lesson that day. And it's been really fun to invite them to come in and participate even with my research where they can help me take the weights of the birds and help me record data and help me put a band on the bird. And that's been this really fun, interactive way to get the community involved in the science. You just brought up a really interesting point is this idea that we actually don't know that much about them. And I think that speaks to me because something 
occurs similarly with urban rats. We live in really close association with them and we don't actually understand all that much about them. So for pigeons, is there anything that really surprises you that we still don't understand? And are any of those things, things that you're working to fill in the gaps on? I think we still don't really understand how their populations are structured. So I've done this study now in the Northeast. This is following up on two studies, one that was done on the island of Singapore that found a single population across that island. That island is also heavily urbanized and pigeons arrived there in about the 1960s. So it could just be that there's been a huge bottleneck effect that hasn't kind of gone away since that. What's a bottleneck effect? A bottleneck effect is when the population kind of gets shrunken down. So in the classic biology textbook, you imagine a bottle full of different colored marbles, maybe green marbles and red marbles. And then you turn the bottle upside down and only a couple marbles can get out at a time. Maybe one or two can escape and you're shaking the marbles out. And there's a possibility that the marbles that make it through that bottleneck are not a representation equally of the population that started beforehand. And so what we see with bottleneck effects is is typically when there's colonization on an island or a new habitat that not all individuals from that original population, not all the genes from that original population end up on that new piece of land, that new place that is colonized. And we see those signatures in the genetics as we analyze them. And we can kind of build back and try to understand the history of how this population was formed. So you've talked about where pigeons are, how far they move, and sort of that relationship to urbanization. So maybe they're not hanging out in suburban areas, which can't blame them, you know? But what can pigeons tell us about the cities that we live in? What can they tell us about urbanization? I think it depends on the city. And that's one of the things that I'm really trying to figure out. One of the things that I've just kind of anecdotally noticed is that, yeah, there's tons of pigeons all over New York City. But when I go visit my parents in the Bay Area, in the San Francisco Bay Area, there's a lot less pigeons. And I can't quite figure out why that is. It's pretty heavily urbanized. The Bay Area is pretty heavily urbanized. But there's also crows and a lot of crows that I see in the Bay Area, which I don't typically see as often in New York City. So I wonder if there's kind of some competition going on there. I noticed the same thing when I was in Panama, that there were lots of grackles around and a lot fewer pigeons. And so there could be some kind of competition going on there. But I'm really interested in kind of understanding what characteristics of cities allow pigeons to really thrive and figuring out how order of arrival of different species and if there's habitat features about the city that really kind of shape what the pigeon population looks like. And maybe flip that on its head for a second. So, you know, what it is about cities that allow pigeons to thrive, but what is it about pigeons that allow them to thrive in cities? So like a lot of good urban organisms, pigeons have a pretty omnivorous diet. I've seen them eating the typical grains, but also seen them eating hot dogs and donuts and pizza, chicken wings. That one seems a little close to home for them. (laughs) They should steer clear of the chicken wings. So like rats and raccoons that we kind of think of as having this very omnivorous diet, pigeons have that as well. Pigeons can also breed 
almost year round. If the city is warm enough, they can breed year round. They're having two offspring per clutch every about six weeks. And so that's a pretty fast turnaround time that can really allow the pigeon population to increase rapidly. And I think unlike rats, pigeons aren't as hated quite as much as rats. I think pretty much everybody agrees that they don't like urban rats, feral rats. Speak for yourself. <laughs> but but pigeons, there are a lot of people who do enjoy feeding them. And you kind of think back to some of those classic movies, Mary Poppins, Home Alone 2. There was always a pigeon lady there feeding those pigeons. And I see those all all around the city where it's a it's an opportunity that people actually really kind of enjoy is is dumping out some rice to to see the pigeons. All right, should we get to some audience questions? Bring them on. Why is the sky? What's at the center of a black hole? Does anyone have free will? It's like carbon based. Why do we keep pets? It's time for listener questions. So our first uh, listener question comes from Millie, and it has to do with pigeons' language. Do they have language? How do they communicate? They definitely coo, uh, and whether that is a type of language, I'm, I'm not quite sure. They also have very particular body movements that allow them to communicate. So there's differences among the flock, right? You, you'll see a big group of pigeons, and sometimes one pigeon will just take off, and none of the other pigeons will take off, and another time... One pigeon will take off and they'll all then follow suit. And so there's subtle cues that the pigeons are giving each other to let them know, hey, I'm just going to fly over here. You don't need to follow me versus, hey, I saw something that might be a predator. Let's all take off right now. And so they're communicating with their bodies. You might also see one of one of my favorite things to demonstrate for my friends is a pigeon mating dance. Yes. And so you might see them kind of... Uh, the males puffing up their chest and fanning out their tail and then kind of strutting around. And then they'll do these circles in front and spins in front of the female. And so that's their little courting mating dance. I get that. That would work for me. Yeah. I've got to try that out. <laughs> Our next question comes from Guavos who wants to know what is the worst pigeon nest that you have ever seen? Pigeons and doves are notoriously crappy at building nests and they'll kind of build them anywhere and not put a lot of effort into it. I think the worst one that I've seen has been on social media where a pigeon decided to build its nest on top of an old phone booth and so just kind of piled up some sticks, kind of just looked like someone dropped something. So that's the the worst one that I think I've seen, but pigeons and doves notoriously bad nest builders. Why do you think that is? Do you think it's because they just don't have to be good at it? Like it's not related to how they attract mates? So I have no idea why they might be bad, why that's a kind of family trait of, of pigeons and doves. Yeah, it's really interesting. Okay, our last question. Um, Nicole asks whether or not pigeons have a higher prevalence of disease than do other birds or if we just generally tend to think of them as dirty. I think that people tend to think of them as dirty, perhaps because you see them out on the street. But in general, 
I the pigeons that I've held and interacted with are pretty clean. They do have lice on them. That lice is not going to get on you because lice is very specific to the host organism and the type of, in this case, feather that it can attach to. And because of that, and you're a mammal, it's not going to attach to you. So even if I get some of the lice on me, they all tend to fall off almost immediately because they can't physically hold on. I have seen a lot of pigeons without toes. That's something that I think happens quite often and is often due to the things that I've seen really wrapped around their feet that amputates their toes are things like synthetic hair, like plastic hair that comes from maybe a wig or something like that. That tends to be what I see most often wrapped around their feet. Of course, if I ever catch a pigeon with something like that on them, I remove it because that's a, an easy service that I can provide the pigeon because they're donating some blood to my study. And the other thing that pigeons tend to have, which is not something that you might see as a, as a disease, but they, they do get lead poisoning. Most pigeons actually have lead poisoning or have high levels of lead in them. And they can actually be used as a bioindicator to tell us areas of the city where there might be a high lead prevalence. So previous researchers have found that high prevalence of lead in pigeons correlates with high prevalence of children getting lead poisoning. So we can actually use these pigeons as a bioindicator to go in and kind of look at an area and make sure that if we are seeing lots of lead poisoning in pigeons, let's go into that area and reduce the amount of lead, see where that lead may be coming from so our kids aren't getting sick. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah. And certainly we've done some research that has shown that like urban wildlife generally are, have higher levels of toxins in their tissues, which makes sense because you're being exposed, being exposed to more of it. But being able to actually use pigeons to look at like fine scale differences is really interesting. And it's one of the things that wildlife rehab centers can do if they get pigeons in from an area, they can test that blood for lead levels and then report back to the city. All right. So shall we do a segment? I would love to do a segment. What you about? All right, Elizabeth, what have you been nerding out about? So since quarantine started, I have finally figured out how to bake sourdough bread. Uh, Last year, last summer, my friend Enrique gave me some sourdough starter and I tried last summer to to rehydrate it and get it going and then after a couple months gave up and stuck it in the fridge and said, I'll deal with this some other time. And come quarantine, I figured it was a good time. Everybody was was starting sourdough bread. And so I I took out this sourdough starter and got it going again, got it nice and active, and then have been baking sourdough bread once a week. My diet is now 95% bread. It is delicious. And even more exciting is that I have all my friends baking sourdough as well. I've been very into the boy who bakes and his recipe. So good. It's so good. I got Kaylee baking it. And it got me thinking a lot about how 
much we as scientists are missing lab work. So, so much of sourdough bread making are these small steps that are timed that you have to do every half hour, every couple of hours, kind of figuring out which ones you have to exactly do on time and which ones you can kind of let go longer is so similar to doing lab work where we have to heat things up and cool things down and kind of do things in a specific order to really get that end product, whether it's extracting the DNA, whatever that that end product is, there's a lot of steps. So sourdough bread has replaced my lab work and it's a lot more delicious than anything that I've cooked up in the lab. Very, very cool. And also, yeah, probably shouldn't be eating things out of the lab. Other good life practices. Never, don't even eat in the lab. Don't eat things that come out of, like just don't, food and lab do not mix. Uh, Michael. Yes. What have you been nerding about? Oh, well, I've been nerding out about audiences. And as a science communicator, as a programmer for a planetarium, uh, I'm always thinking about audiences for programs, for the things that we do. And of course, here with this podcast, we used to run a live event and we cultivated an audience for over five years. And now we're doing a podcast and that audience is different. Now, when I'm thinking about audiences to come to a planetarium for an event, we've been building an audience for years and years and years. And our planetarium has been around for 50 years. So we have all of this history. And now all of a sudden in the past month, it's like all of that is out the window because now we have this new audience now that lives online. And it's really like doing weird stuff with my brain because it's I'm thinking about you know, people that have access to internet that maybe don't have access to internet. If we're thinking about our school audiences and the kids and how some kids learn better by interacting with their screens and some kids don't. And now it's kind of really getting back to now we're coming through the internet. And when you do like a live event, you know, everyone comes online, but who are these people that come online and you can't see them. And that's one of the main things about a communicator is that you can see the people coming in and you can get feedback from them. And now it's a whole different world now. And this is going to completely change, you know, uh, my work. And even when we come out of this, I think this is going to completely change um, forever for the future. So, you know, at times it can get really kind of like daunting and really kind of scary, but it is kind of exciting to think that we have this new opportunity. Um, So scary, exciting all at once. And that's what I've been learning about. Well, I mean, you did get to turn your entire kitchen into a studio. And I do want to note that you're dressed up right now. While I am in basically pajamas, (laughs) you, from what I can tell, have a bow tie on. And maybe a yeah. button down. That's just Michael's normal wear. <laughs> well, I was just live on YouTube a few hours ago. So <laughs> so you felt you had to dress up. But but here's yeah. your opportunity to not have to wear dress up clothes ever. Yeah, come on. Dress down. Oh, I mean, like, you know, well, yeah, I don't have anything on my bottoms right now. I'm completely <laughs> oh, nude no, 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 no. <laughs> I'm joking. Kaylee, what are you nerding about? So, Michael, as, as you know, I am a huge... Buffy the Vampire Slayer fan and I have seen this show in its entirety like I actually don't even know how many times and in the last year there's been a new comic book series about Buffy that has come out from Boom Comics and it's totally reimagining Buffy the Vampire Slayer if it was today same characters but different situation and it's answering some of the big questions that we all have about Buffy like does nobody in this show have a telephone that they can just call each other? (laughs) Um, And now they've got cell phones and it's really dark. And last night I I was reading um, the second volume that just came out, I think in February, I've been saving it and it was a real delight. It's been so fun. I thought I would have a really hard time 
detaching from the characters that I've really grown to love, but they've managed to keep sort of the essence of those characters, but reimagine them in 2020. And it's just been, it's been such a treat amidst everything else. So that's what I've been nerding about. Awesome. Well, that brings us to the end of our podcast. Elizabeth, thank you so much uh, for joining us. Uh, people want to learn more about your pigeon research. Of course, they can go to SNL and watch the, the, latest, <laughs> the latest episode. But if they, if they, you know, beyond that, where can they find your work? They can find out more about me on my website, elizabethcarlin.com, or follow me on Twitter at E underscore Carlin. And you can hear more of Nerd Night YVR while we are doing this fun podcast at Nerd Night YVR on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. But until next time, cool.